there are several things that are you know, worth bearing in mind um, as we come to, to these verses. Um, if, you, if you haven't uh, been with us before, uh, recently that uh, Jesus came uh, face to face with a rich young man. Um, and what happened in that account helps us understand what's going to happen in three different um, three different movements this morning. Um, Matthew points us back to something that happens in the Old Testament, something that's prophesied in the Old Testament, which we'll get to in a second. In fact, a couple of things from the Old Testament. Um, and in a lot of ways, what happens in these verses this morning is probably very familiar if you've read... Uh, the Bible much, if you know much about Jesus' life. Uh, and so we're going to hear uh, what is, uh, hopefully, what is actually there, and not just what we think is there, having read it many times before. Um, if you remember nothing else, these verses tell us to follow, to trust, and to worship the true eternal King. That is where we're going this morning. Follow, trust, and worship the true eternal King. Uh, let me... Uh, read the verses, then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig in. So from verse 29 of chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel. And they went out of Jericho. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. And they cried out, they, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, they sent, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as, he, as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the roads and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's word. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for King Jesus. Uh, we pray that as we consider what you say here we might be transformed more into the likeness of Christ and uh, made to depend on him more closely we pray this in Jesus name Amen 
Um, during the, the Platinum Jubilee last summer, uh, there was um, lots of kind of tidbits of stories that came out about Queen Elizabeth um, that were meant to kind of give us a sense of who the Queen really was. Uh, there was more of them came out uh, during um, the funeral as well. Uh, one of them that, that kind of stuck in the public's imagination somewhat um, involved an interview with uh, the head of her personal protection detail. Uh, this is a, um, an officer called uh, uh, Richard Griffin. He'd been with the Queen for years and years. His job was to make sure that she was safe. Um, uh, and often when they were um, up in Balmoral in Scotland in Aberdeenshire, uh, they would uh, go out for a walk. So she would enjoy walking around the area around the castle. Uh, she would go out without all of the, the kind of fanfare. And she'd um, uh, proceed through the, the grounds, sometimes stop for a picnic uh, with, uh, with Richard Griffin. And, and he talked about this particular instance where they were out for a walk, uh, the Queen and her officer, uh, and passed uh, two American tourists. Uh, and the American tourists didn't recognise who she was. So they were uh, chatting away to her, this uh, lovely little old lady who was uh, out for a country walk and said, oh, oh do, do you live round here? Uh, and, and the Queen said, well, you know, I, I, I actually have a, a house in London, but I, I spend some time up here now and again. Um, and so the conversation goes on. And they say, oh, it must, be, it must be great to be able to come up here on holiday. Do, have, you, have you ever seen the Queen? And, um, uh, and the Queen smiled and said, well, you know, uh, Dickie here who's with me, he, he sees her almost every day. Um, and the conversation goes on like this, and, and eventually the, uh, the tourists ask for a selfie with, with Richard's Griffin because he's the one that gets to see the Queen every day, so the Queen gets given the camera to take a picture. Uh, and the, the story is so enjoyable to us because these people have met the Queen but didn't know who they were meeting. It's, it's, they met someone and they thought she was someone else. Uh, that's kind of the dichotomy that we have at play here in these verses this morning. People have met the king, but not everyone knows who they've met. There's three incidents that we'll, we'll tackle with one after each other. Um, and they all contribute to people who either see or don't see the real king. So the first of the, the three is an encounter between Jesus and the, blind, uh, the two blind men. And Matthew puts that here to tell us that King Jesus offers me mercy that creates disciples. King Jesus offers me mercy that creates disciples. Now in the face of it, um, if you uh, go back in Matthew's gospel, back to chapter 9, there's a very similar story there of Jesus encountering two blind men. Uh, Jesus meets them uh, and gives them back their sight. Uh, and then again, the same thing happens here at the end of chapter 20. Uh, they, they're swept up as Jesus passes by. They call him the son of David, uh, just as happened in chapter 9. Uh, in both cases, they, the men ask for mercy, uh, for rescue, before they ask for medicine. Uh, they answer Jesus' question, and then almost instantly he heals them. So, so it's worth asking, when we see something repeated in God's word particularly within the same book, asking why did the writer keep this incident here? Uh, there was lots of um, accounts and stories I'm sure that Matthew could have given us to make his point about who Jesus is. So why does he come back to a very similar incident of two blind men meet, meeting Jesus? 
I think there's, there's a few reasons. Some of them come to us in the similarities between chapter 9 and chapter 20, uh, some of the differences. Um, so as we look at, at the two cases of blind men being healed by Jesus, in both cases, these are incidental people. They are weak and vulnerable people. Uh, their, their disability stops them being self-sufficient. They are totally dependent on uh, other people helping them, feeding them, caring for them. Uh, they, they can only sit by the road and ask other people to do things for them. They can't support themselves. They can't participate in what is going on around them without uh, being invited or without help. They are, if you like, the opposite of the rich young man that you, you saw if you were here a few weeks ago. Uh, when Jesus talked to this self-sufficient, self-capable uh, young man uh, with all the world's wealth, uh, these two blind men are, are the very opposites of that man. Matthew wants to remind us, as we see these two blind men, of what he said to that rich young ruler, of the picture that Jesus painted for him, that eternal life, that ultimately peace with God forever is available only to those who depend utterly on Jesus, who are in no sense self-sufficient. There's a contrast here uh, with that incident. But more than that, what's about to happen in Matthew's Gospel is a sustained period where Jesus is misunderstood. People can't see clearly who he is. These two blind men are physically incapable of seeing Jesus walk by, but immediately they understand who they're dealing with. Uh, as uh, the, chapters, the last few chapters of Matthew's Gospel unfold, again and again it's the unexpected people who get it, who understand who Jesus is. So how do these two men address him? What is it uh, they see that healthy eyes can't perceive? They look at him and they say, Son of David... It's exactly the same words that they used, uh, that were used by the blind men in chapter 9. What is it that they're saying when they call Jesus son of David? It's not just that they're saying, your dad was called David. Uh, We know that's not true. We know his dad was called Joseph. Uh, They are sort of saying, you come from David's family, one of your great, 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 great grandparents was King David. But that's not all they're saying. We use similar kind of phrases today. There's, there, there's equivalents in, in our kind of in our language. Um, maybe you've heard someone say something like, "Such and such is the new black." So this week there was an article saying that um, there's a particular shade of purple is the new black for spring 2023. Always up on the latest fashion. I uh, noticed that. It was my main article of note this week. Um, when we say something is the new black, what is it we're saying? Is it, are we saying when I look at a purple uh, top or dress, I see it as if it was obsidian black? Is that what I'm saying, that my eyes interpret the stimulus as being actually exactly um, the colour black? Well, no, what we're saying is when we say purple is the new black, we're saying it has all of the importance, all of the elegance, all of the significance of a classic garment. When a footballer is called the, the Manchester Messi, we're not saying that suddenly Lionel Messi has been moved to Manchester and he is uh, hiding in someone else's skin. We're saying we recognise something about this player that reminds us of something else. 
So when these men hail uh, uh, Jesus as the son of David, yes, they're saying he's from his family, he's a descendant of David, but they're saying this is a man who's exactly who God promised to King David hundreds of years ago. King David was the, the peak, the pinnacle of the Jewish kings. Uh, he is often the shorthand for the greatest of God's kings. And God promised that one day he would send a king who would be infinitely greater than the greatest king there's ever been. If you have time later on, go and look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises that the greater, to the greatest king in history, King David, that one of his people would be the greatest king for eternity. The blind men are seeing Jesus in their mind's eye and recognising that he is the great king that's been promised to God's people. Uh, as they say that, they're hushed by the crowd. Uh, they're told that they're being inconvenient, that they are insignificant. There's a swarm around Jesus that they don't want him to be distracted from what they think they want. They want Jesus to be a conquering hero, a mighty warrior. But Jesus ignores the, the buzz and he turns to the men and says, what does he want? Now, pretty obviously, they say, well, we want to be able to see. That's why we came to you, obviously. And at that moment, Jesus is filled with compassion. At once, he gives them their sight. They're not just an object lesson. They're not just a, a metaphor to Jesus. They are real, genuine people that he shows extraordinary compassion to. And immediately, what happens? What do these men do? They do exactly what the rich young ruler in the last chapter didn't. The two blind men follow Jesus. Verse 34, they immediately recovered their sight and they followed him. They're drawn in his wake, not just because he's given them great medical care, not just because he's given them back a life that they couldn't have had without him, but because he's demonstrated who he really is, that he is what they said. He is the promised king. They follow him. Chapter 9 starts with two isolated men and ends up with this PR buzz, a huge crowd around Jesus. In this story, it goes the opposite direction. We start with a crowd, with a swarm with a buzz around Jesus who are misunderstanding him and we end up with two disciples. What they've been given is not just healing, although it is that, but they've been given mercy. Who has given it to them is not just a healer, but the great king who's been promised to Jesus' people, to God's people. The rescuer who will secure God's people forever and for certain. Not just healing, but merciful rescue. Not just a healer, but God's promised king. In this cycle, uh, Matthew will uh, again and again show us people who miss the point. Not see what is right in front of them. But in a few short, and in, um, and in a few short verses, we'll see vulnerable, marginalised, blind people see what others do not. The merciful, mighty king. And the reaction that they have is to follow him. The story moves on. Uh, the crowds sweep forward with two new believers uh, alongside the forever king. And they begin to approach Jerusalem. It's a place where, where Jesus has already said he's going to face uh, something he's predicted at least three times already. 
suffering, injustice, ultimately execution and death, followed by his own resurrection. How will he enter the city of God's people? Will he come in by stealth, by a back gate, like Robin Hood and uh, Prince of Thieves, and, and enter Nottingham in a cart? Will he come like a warrior with great shows of strength? Um, these two stories, the, the retrieval of the donkey and then the entry, are, are so familiar to us that perhaps we can read it quickly and miss what's in the verses. Because Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Um, it's not about demonstrating he is a king. It's about demonstrating he is the real king. It's about demonstrating that he is God's king. He's following a pattern that's been set uh, hundreds of years before. Uh, as the, the, the disciples are sent to retrieve the donkey, Matthew is showing us that King Jesus comes in weakness that guarantees me ultimate everlasting rescue. King Jesus comes in weakness that guarantees me ultimate everlasting rescue. Jesus' disciples uh, are sent ahead of him to get what he needs for this entry. Uh, anyone who's followed any of the stories about the preparation for the, the new king's coronation uh, or watched any of the, the royal um, uh, events last year knows what to expect if uh, a reigning monarch arrives. You get gold and gilt. You get plumes and power. A king or a queen arrives with a show of strength, of influence, but not this one. It's a quirky, true story, the disciples being sent to get this donkey. Uh, but thankfully, Matthew tells us exactly why he's recording it for us. He says it's here to fulfill what was promised to God's people centuries before. Uh, the prophet Zechariah, uh, you can go and look this up later on, Zechariah chapter 9. He spoke to God's people uh, who had recently returned from exile. People who were uh, subject to years, decades of uh, the hands of occupying, enslaving overlords. He was speaking to people who were weak and vulnerable, Zechariah was, uh, but they were beginning to return to the land that God had promised to them. They were weak and they were shaky, they were vulnerable and they needed reassurance. And so towards the end of his prophecy, Zechariah uh, prophesies about God's future rescue, not just what's happening now, but what would happen eventually. And he talks about the coming of God's king. The coming of God's king should provoke shouts of uh, a sheer joy in God's people. He's a king who brings certain rescue with him. He is on the side of right and he is on God's right side. That's what Zechariah says about the coming king. He brings victory. He brings rescue. He brings certainty. He brings the promise of victory over God's enemies. Strong foes will have their strength removed. God's people will uh, be rescued uh, as certainly and as completely as it's possible to imagine. The king will leave behind no threats. God's people will be completely safe, not just for a moment, but forever. He will bring true all the promises of God. He will usher in the final and full and complete and exhaustive victory of God to safeguard his people forever. That's what the king will do. That's what Zechariah says. The king arrives, uh, the king arriving is what happens immediately before that rescue comes. The king arrives and then the victory follows. And as the king arrives, Zechariah says this, then the Lord will appear, appear over them 
on that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, his people shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, the king's goodness. How great is his beauty. That's how the king's coming ends. But in Zechariah's prophecy, how does it start? The king... Start, the king's arrival starts not with the king on a mighty charger, not in a chariot, but on a donkey. The king's arrival starts not with a battalion, but with a pack animal. It ends in complete rescue for God's people, but it starts in utter weakness. Jesus' final weeks begin in weakness. But starting in weakness guarantees us that God is fulfilling his promise. Guarantees that the end will happen just as the start does. For Jesus is the promised forever king that God's people expected ever since David. But uh, but before that happens, before victory, comes vulnerability. This is not the king that you're expecting, Matthew is saying. But he should be. The signs are there. He's seen by blind men, just as was prophesied. He's given a royal parade on a beast of burden, just as was prophesied. But that is precisely the king that God's people ought to be expecting. He comes in weakness, but weakness that foreshadows God's complete and utter victory to rescue his people. First weakness, and then victory. That's the shape of God's plan. And so the the pack animal has been retrieved. Jesus mounts the donkey and he rides into Jerusalem in weakness and heading for his own death. He knows that's where he's going. Both the healing and the donkey tell a tale of the king God's people ought to expect. But in the end, those people are looking for a different trajectory. So in this third incident, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, uh, we see Jesus, uh, that we want Jesus to be someone else. We want Jesus to be someone else. Uh, Often, uh, as it is in um, the church Bibles, um, the the kind of the non-inspired heading at the start of this section is the triumphal entry, um, which conjures up ideas in our heads. It conjures up ideas of of victory and strength, uh, which can be a little bit misleading. What's happening here as Jesus enters Jerusalem is not Zelensky in fatigues, Uh, standing up to Putin but the crowd around him want him to be that they want the man who stands against the oppressor the conquering hero they speak of him with pomp and ceremony they usher him in as the one who'll beat the Romans who'll set them free he is Zelensky to their Putin to the Putin of the Romans he is Robin Hood to the sheriff of Nottingham he is he's Gandalf coming over the mountains at Helm's Deep um we were watching um, the two towers last night with our older two kids and we stopped it just before we got to that point so they haven't seen that but yeah they haven't they wouldn't get that reference but um that moment where the the rescuer comes to set you free from the oppressor from the orcs from the sheriff of nottingham but when they're asked who it is they're hailing and who it is they're trumpeting what is it they say is this god's king Verse 11, the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus. This is the man from Nazareth of Galilee. He's a prophet. He's a man. He speaks for God. He reminds us of God. But he's no different to you and I. 
He's one of us. He explains God's promises to us. That is not what the blind men have seen. That is not who the donkey says it's carrying. Not explanation of the promises of God. The fulfilment of centuries of promises of God. The time for prophesying is over, this entry is saying to us. This is the time of keeping promises from God. The crowd wants strength followed by victory. They miss what the blind men have seen, that this is the ultimate king that was promised to David. This is the one who comes in weakness that precedes ultimate, eternal, everlasting salvation. What follows in the the next few chapters shows how quickly the swarm around Jesus are disillusioned when he turns out not to be who they want him to be. This is not a triumphant entry so much as the true king's humble submission to suffering and death. Their cheers are triumphalist, but they're empty. Their praise is a mile wide and an inch deep. Their praise is a a symphony played at fortissimo that lasts only a second. This is the true king, the bringer of God's promised rescue, but he is mistaken for a teacher, for a prophet, for a, a mighty, influential man. But at this point in the gospel, though almost everyone around him seems to have misjudged who Jesus is, Matthew wants us to look over their shoulders and see this is Jesus, the true King of God, the one who carries God's promise to completion, ushers in rescue for people who are utterly dependent only on him for salvation. So as we finish, I, I, want, to, uh, I want to pick up three implications from these uh, incidents. Uh, there's nothing rocket science about these. I'm pretty sure any of you could, uh, could come up with these as well. But that's because Matthew wants us to keep it simple here. This is the true king that we're faced with. So there's three implications. First of them is to follow the merciful king. Jesus treats the blind men with dignity. They are real people who have real needs. And he gives them more than dignity. He gives them what they really need. Their sight is important for them. It is a sign that God is compassionate toward the vulnerable, just as his people ought to be. But it also points to a much bigger gift. The mercy that the blind men asked for when they first spoke to Jesus. And what does mercy produce in the blind men? It makes them disciples. It makes them followers. In chapter 9, the healing produced preachers. It produced people who told others about what Jesus had done for them. They spread the story. They increased his celebrity. But here, they ask for mercy. And when they receive it, they become devoted followers. They do precisely what Jesus has asked the rich young man to do in chapter 19. And which he went away unable to do. Stake your future, your eternity on Jesus. These men had glimpsed something of who Jesus was even before they could see the world around them physically. They glimpsed that this was God's king. And so Matthew shows us that we don't need cleverness or strength or or having it together to receive the mercy that we need. We need to know that we need mercy. We need to trust the only place to get it is from the hands of God's real king. It's kind of a simplistic, simple implication from the verses, but it It is what Matthew wants us to do in response. We don't need anything really other than to follow Jesus. 
We get mercy. We get to be swept up in his wake in the security that he offers forever and for certain by allowing him to be the king that he really is. The master that's in charge of our universe and in charge of our lives. Not trying to make him the puppet king that we want. Follow Jesus, the merciful king, who gives us not what we want, but what we need. What we cannot secure ourselves. So the second implication, then, is to trust the promised king. Trust the promised king. Jesus has impeccable heritage. Uh, Matthew, uh, throughout his gospel, wants us to see that this is... Uh, is someone who is descended from King David, truly. Uh, but he is also, more than that, the one promised to King David. The one that David was only ever a shadow of. He's the king that was promised through Zechariah to a people who were weak and vulnerable, returning from exile, finding their place in, a, in the world after almost a century of oppression. As they went to the rubble of their destroyed city, they were promised a king uh, through Zechariah. And the king, this is a king who enters in weakness, but a weakness that comes before complete and utter and universal and everlasting victory that secures God's people in safety forever. Raising the promise through both David and Zechariah, Matthew's saying you need to trust this king. He's the real deal. He, the, the phase that you're in at the moment is surrounded by weakness, but it is not the end. It is the necessary step that ushers in that final, ultimate, everlasting victory. He's saying what you see now, Christian, it looks like weakness. What you see around you looks and feels like weakness. What you see now doesn't seem to stand up to much in a technological, rational world. What you see now when you read the Bible, when you gather at church on a Sunday, seems like weakness from two, two millennia ago. But it is, it is the mark of promise and prophecy that it comes true. Jesus was painstakingly following the promises of God to demonstrate that he is that true king. And the true king's story begins in weakness, but it does not end there. It is secured by his humble, humiliating obedience. And so, Christian, as you feel like what you hear on a Sunday morning is nothing but watery sunlight that's chased away as you go into a substantial world around. As you feel that Jesus is nothing but insubstantial stories when you're faced with what others believe and say, Matthew calls us to stake our eternity on the only king that God offers. The king who came in weakness, the king who secured eternity of safety for God's people in what he did. And because he's alive, we know that his weakness is the essential point in the narrative but it is not the last point in the narrative and so we can trust in the promised king uh, and then thirdly worship the true king but don't be surprised when he's misunderstood worship the true king but don't be surprised when he's misunderstood uh, Matthew wants us to see the comparison between the, the blind men and the, the swarm of people around Jesus uh, Jesus was a convenient coat hanger for what the crowd wanted from the world. But the source and soul of everything that the blind men knew that they needed. The, the crowd were interested in the gifts of God's promise. The blind men were interested in the giver. The crowd cheered the blessing. The blind men followed their king. The crowd trumpeted the king that they wanted... 
and Jesus was temporarily filling a convenient gap in the market for them, the blind men begged for mercy and worshipped God's true forever king. Matthew wants us to see the comparison and be like the blind men, not like the crowds. Worship the true king, the one that he really sent. Don't create the life that you've always wanted and then try and fit Jesus into it. Don't fit Jesus into what you want to be politically true or socially true. Worship the king that God's given. He demands to be followed, to be trusted, to be worshipped. And Zechariah's promise shows that ultimately we will all bend the knee to the only king that the universe has, King Jesus. But don't be surprised when people misunderstand who Jesus truly is. The crowd wanted someone who fulfilled the world they wanted. They wanted the Romans gone and freedom for themselves. And so the the attempt to squeeze the maker of the universe into a token warrior that exists in their imagination. In just the same way, we we often hear uh, people, uh, we're aware of people seeing something of Jesus, taking a grain of truth, and trying to use Jesus as the hero that will deliver them the world that they want. Jesus is all about love. So anything called love is what Jesus wants. Jesus is for love, and so Jesus is for what I want love to be. Jesus wants us to be good. So long as I'm respectable, so long as I champion today's campaigns, so long as I give to Oxfam, then he's, he's not bothered about what I do in my free time. Jesus wants warrior men to lead his people. And so I should be more important than all the women around me. None of that is true. It's what people want to be true and then they try and fit Jesus into it. The world always tries to squeeze Jesus into what, is, what it already wants as a kind of conscience salve uh, to make things that we want seem more spiritual. But what Jesus wants us to do is to find a cause Uh, what Matthew wants us to do is not to find a cause and then make Jesus someone who champions that it is to worship the true king that is really there as he's really presented to us in God's word the true king who arrives riding on a donkey who is also the one who is great in goodness and beauty who saves God's people our call is to trust that king the true king King Jesus let us, let us worship that king together. Let's pray. Loving Father God, we uh, thank you for King Jesus who was willing to arrive in weakness that he might secure the ultimate and certain complete eternal victory that ensures uh, our safety forever. Father, thank you for Jesus who has rescued us Help us to be people who follow, who trust, who worship the true King Jesus as we see him in your words and as we pray to him. Father, thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.